Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you for joining us. It is time to bring you a live statement from Special Counsel Jack Smith regarding the indictment of former President Trump. I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. The prosecutors in my office are among the most talented and experienced in the Department of Justice. They have investigated this case hewing to the highest ethical standards, and they will continue to do so as this case proceeds. It's very important for me to note that the defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. In conclusion, I would like to thank the dedicated public servants of the Federal Bureau of Investigation with whom my office is conducting this investigation and who work tirelessly every day upholding the rule of law in our country. I'm deeply proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Thank you very much. You've been listening to special coverage from NPR, special counsel Jack Smith. They're issuing a live statement regarding the indictment of former President Trump. As you probably know, this indictment's been unsealed today. It alleges that Trump kept classified documents at his Florida estate, various locations, in fact. And um, the prosecutor, uh, the special counsel there, to me, the, the key statement was him saying, we have one set of laws in this country and they apply to everyone. That seemed to be his main message in that brief statement. This is Week in Review, and before we go on to discuss the local news of the week, as we always do, I want to introduce my panel of journalists, local journalists, and get a quick reaction to what we just heard. We have Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone, who knows a lot about dealing with classified documents. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Bill. We also have freelance science journalist Jane C. Who with us. Welcome back, Jane. Thanks for having me. And GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Welcome back, Mike. Always happy to be here. 
Uh, let's make sure uh, Mike's microphone is on. It, can, can you see which one uh, you're on there? Is it labeled? Uh, there you go. I hear working? you. That's it. We got the right one. Okay, so uh, before we discuss the uh, the local news of the week, uh, Patrick, as I said, you want to remind our listeners your experience with this topic, classified documents, which are at the heart of the federal indictment of Donald Trump that we just heard about from the special counsel. Yeah, my beat uh, for five, almost six years, right before I arrived here in Seattle three years ago, was covering corruption inside the nuclear weapons program, which, you know, our currency was essentially classified documents. They're hard to get. And people are very selective about what they'll share with you, even from a classified document. They'll often go out of their way to make sure the portion they're sharing is a declassified portion or certainly doesn't even brush up against that. And so this is this is pretty astronomical number of indictments and documents. And it's uh, unusual in a couple of ways. It's not like a Snowden or a reality winner type situation where someone leaks something to the media uh, with the intent of sharing it broadly so the American people know what is going on in their government. This is very different. And a quick breeze through the indictment this morning uh, makes very clear that uh, Trump is accused of sort of leveraging this for what we don't know exactly uh, with a writer and an editor and presumably to sort of manipulate how he would be framed and, and uh, cast in their book. Uh, this was a recording that shows up in there, and he, he shows this to people that do not have the appropriate clearance to be trusted with these these kind of documents, just like if someone were to share them with me as a journalist. And um, we also saw that he shared this information with a PAC leader, someone from his political a action political, committee. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, we don't know with what in mind, but that's the kind of thing that could potentially gain the favor of rich insiders, wealthy insiders who want to feel like they know something others don't, but in reality could be setting themselves up to become targets for international espionage. And this is not a joke. I mean, this is very serious matter. And it included things such as U.S. targeting of foreign countries, uh, target plans that are suspected of uh, other countries that target us. So this is highly, highly sensitive information. And it appears that it was ostensibly used to manipulate uh, perceptions of Trump, which is an unusual aspect that we don't see in a lot of whistleblower cases. And there's also the added element of obstruction, uh, the efforts that the, the DOJ says that former President Trump went to to keep his possession and sharing of these documents secret. Uh, and these are two things that make it highly unique. We have seen in recent years, for instance, a uh, high-ranking Obama administration official picked off and removed from the job for sharing classified information with the New York Times and others. But uh, there was no criminal element to that. And it was probably, you know, I'm assuming I wasn't a part of that investigation, but I'm assuming that uh, it followed the protocols that exist in Washington between reporters and sources, which is you might get a glimpse at something that matters, but we're not going to share classified information with you. Okay. Uh, before we go on to our local news of the week, our brief on this week in review show, uh, Jane or Mike, any other reaction to either what you've learned about the indictment as it's been unsealed today or what we just heard from the special counsel? One, I thought that that was a really great description of what's going on here, Patrick. But but I would say secondarily, when you brought up the obstruction, that's actually what roped in his valet. Because apparently, under instruction, was moving boxes around Mar-a-Lago and trying to keep them from the investigators actually finding them. The other thing that, that strikes Documents me is... Documents in the, the a ballroom, storeroom, office, bedroom, bath, bathroom, and shower. Right, right. I mean, and honestly, it's kind of the way my house looks. So I get it. You know, mm. like, like you don't always put this stuff away properly. 
properly. But I'm, it, what's really interesting to me is just his whole history of ha- wanting to have these little signifiers of status and access, right? Of Like when he had Shaquille O'Neal's shoes and he has all these things that he likes to show to people. And that's what these documents were. These were the things he wanted to use as like bragging points, you know, in light of the fact that it was incredibly potentially alleged, incredibly illegal for him to have these things. It's so funny that this was so personality driven more than it was probably uh, informationally driven. Come Jamie. see my classified documents in my shower is all I can think about here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's a line. Uh, okay. Well, that is um, a, a brief reaction to the unsealing of the indictment and the, the, the live brief statement you just heard from the special counsel. Essentially, try to reassure the public that this is not a politically motivated prosecution, but that we have a rule of law and it applies to everyone. Uh, okay, shall we begin with the the news gone by in our own in the upper left hand corner of this great nation? Um, we and by the way, you can stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Again, I'm with uh, that was Patrick Malone of the uh, Seattle Times and Mike Lewis from GeekWire and freelance science journalist Jane C. Who all with us. Let us begin with uh, I think the top story of the week: the Seattle City Council voting. Not to let our city attorney enforce the new state drug law. Remember, our state lost its felony drug law thanks to the state Supreme Court. So the legislature replaced that with a new law making public drug use and possession a gross misdemeanor statewide. Seattle's city attorney, Ann Davison, wanted to essentially codify that in Seattle, which is not unusual. Her office would be able to prosecute these drug crimes. For the past two years... Uh, it's been a de facto decriminalization here. Uh, and so what we're doing is acknowledging that that is not the way to go forward. And we are deeply invested in diversion services where those are appropriate. But the Seattle City Council, including Tammy Morales, voted no. We need to show our neighbors that we will focus on real solutions like diversion and treatment and housing. That's how we create safety for Seattle. So, Mike, so far this just sounds like progressive Seattle, except this time the vote was very close, five to four, and the swing vote, Andrew Lewis says he's still open to prosecuting. He just wants to know that the system has a way of diverting some of those arrested people away from court and into treatment. So it was a dramatic vote, but what should our listeners know was important about the vote? Well, first off, um, bringing up Andrew Lewis is really interesting, given his own history, right? I mean, he was a guy who was a top attorney uh, for Pete Holmes, that where this whole process— Former city attorney. Former city attorney, Pete Holmes. And so this is where the whole process for this started. The second thing is that this is as much about how little the council trusts Ann Davison as city attorney because of the closing down of the collaborative court— that they had created. The community court, the just commu- what, last week or so? Right. Yeah. And without ever, I mean, this was an opportunity for, for Anne to go. We're going to tell people the community court yeah. is this therapeutic court or pro- therapeutic program for low-level offenders. Essentially a diversion court. A diversion it, it, court. It was a diversion court. Yeah. It, was, it was essentially the way to accomplish all of this stuff regarding getting people into treatment and right. not actually criminalizing these things. Right. And, and it was not, in her mind, it was not being effect, effectively used, and it was not being the people who were convicted or, or pro- through this process were not then following up with the appropriate treatment on and on. Yeah. Well, closing that unilaterally, which was 
absolutely the office's right to do so mm-hmm. without ever going to the city council seems to me like a colossal mistake. One, the council was very unhappy about this happening. And two, why not just put it on the council's lap and say, hey, I'm going to do this. Could we get someone here to, to, to maybe shore up this program and get it actually working before I do this? But that wasn't what was done. This was, I think, politically speaking – she created a problem here that she didn't even need to have because yeah. she could have absolutely fronted this onto the council and then said, help me fix this before I shut it down. And that's not what happened. And so all of that vote had this as an underpinning. Yeah. Jane, you also said that this seemed to be a matter of trust, trust in the city attorney's office. Yeah. I mean, I also feel like just at its root, if the plan here was to try and get people off the streets and to help people get treatment for addiction – Put, criminalizing addiction didn't seem like it was going to be a way to to actually make that happen either. Patrick, what was your reaction? Well, you know, I think uh, to piggyback a little bit on both of your points, uh, this was an, a real opportunity for Davison to forge a, an alliance with city council, exactly. and she didn't. And exactly. frankly, where was the mayor on this, too? I mean, Harold was completely absent. He did not uh, really get his hands dirty with this to uh, – get in the middle of it and impose sort of his policy objectives here. So I think what we have is, you know, council rightly acknowledging that the war on drugs is a failure, but there is an appetite for dialing back the dystopia downtown a tad, which makes us such a compelling issue. But where was Davison? She removes the community court, which, you know, let's face it, that was not perfect. There were a lot of flaws in it and she pointed those out, but there was no effort to fix them. They threw it out with the bathwater. But she also pointed out there are other diversion programs, and she claimed to be committed to diversion, to diverting people away from incarceration. Correct. And I I would like to see that if, you know, if they aren't going about this backwards and they truly want to get a place of, get to a place of diversion being the true objective here, then I'd love to see a survey on what the needs are and whether we're, we're able to meet those. But really, I just see this as a huge failure by Harrell and Davison to build alliances on council. Well, meanwhile, you have the fact this is a statewide uh, drug law. Seattle police could arrest people for drug use or possession. Then you'd have the question of, well, then what would happen to them if Seattle officially doesn't can't prosecute these uh, cases? It could be King County, where Seattle is located. But then King County's prosecutor basically said, no, we don't have money for that. We're not. Right. We, we don't want. To, we don't want to do that. This has. This is. You. You uh, enforce it. Yeah, well, I, this is. This has become such a mess and such, uh, as they would say in soccer, an own goal. This is one of those things where it was mishandled at the state level, and then we managed to actually find a way to even mishandle it at the local level when we didn't even need to in this particular case. So what you're going to find is that. Uh, I don't think police officers in Seattle, I think they're going to see this as a catch and release program. In other words, when they if if they will arrest somebody for possession of illegal drugs, because uh, they don't work for the city. attorney. The city attorney can't tell the police, go no. arrest people. No, this, this is this is absolutely this is absolutely it's 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 always been a little bit ridiculous, except with real human cost. But this has moved it into a whole new category of ridiculous that that the city's attorney, city attorney's office is not going to prosecute. Is going is not going to have the capacity to prosecute these these uh, these crimes. The city council wants a a more robust diversion program in place without actually putting anything in place to do that. We don't actually have enough diversion services to even account for the people who would be arrested on this. There's no end of this thing that actually works. 
at this particular juncture. So, the, but this swing vote, Andrew Lew- Andrew Lewis on the council, then said, "Well, I am open to if if we really want to use arrest and prosecution as as leverage to get people into treatment." I'm open to that. Let's just just show me that that's actually going to happen. Can that happen? Can these programs be stood up or can they be proven to five council members that this is this diversion is really going to happen? Andrew Lewis is trying to have it both ways here, I think. I think I think he he is this is part performative, right? That he he knew. He know, no one on the council knows this program knows knows the uh this program better than Andrew Lewis no one and yet he still is waffling on this like I'm open to it but I can't, I'm not ready to vote for it another person who to 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 Patrick's point about the uh lack of leadership here I would add him to the mix he also just stumbled into a great deal of clout you know if you think about it he really holds in his hands something that people are very passionate about right now and who knows how he might leverage that for for other things that he may want, or if he just truly wants to take his time and sort this out. But, you know, with the sort of absence of leadership from Davison and Harrell on this, uh, Lewis kind of stumbled into a real role of responsibility here. And I'd really like to see what he's going to do to sort it out. So if a listen, someone listening to us, this is a lot of different agencies and yeah. votes and re-votes and what should our listeners know about which direction where is seattle going when it comes to prosecuting drug crimes can we tell anybody yet there's a direction seattle is going status quo or they're moving i don't think we can even define what drugs they're talking about at this point too that's a very 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 good point right what do you mean it's a vague debate because they could prosecute or not prosecute and which drugs do they want to I mean, the, the the subtext is, or the context is that fentanyl overdoses just keep soaring. That that's those deaths are out of control. The problem with addressing it at the user level is that we get into the same reason that the war on drugs has really failed. You know, it becomes a cup stacking exercise for police where they're not really cutting the head off of the snake. You know, I don't think Seattle City Council holds in its hands the solution to the fentanyl problem. I think what they can do is put a dent in it by getting treatment the right way and focusing law enforcement efforts on distribution. I mean, if you're going to be prosecuting all technically illegal drugs, then you put that in the hands of folks to decide who is going to be arrested and then actually prosecuted for those things, right? And as we know from decades of data um, and the war on drugs, um, that ends up becoming a class and race thing a lot of the time. And I mean, if you um, listen to snippets from that meeting, um, I think that's a lot of what the public commenters were talking about, their own personal experience with this and this bigger trend um, that I think this vote away from this is we're hoping to sidestep that. Okay, well, we'll we'll wrap this up. I have one more question, and maybe it's just howling into the void. But because I see this coming up with, remember when Seattle was talking of defunding police, but we've got to set up the alternatives to policing with a with a gun. We want to. We don't. It's not working to move people from encampment to encampment. You know, chase people around. So we want um, places where they can actually live and they're willing to go. So not just congregate shelters. Alternatives, alternatives. We've got to set up alternatives. 
and then yet again we're saying we don't we, we don't want to uh, we don't want to just arrest our way out of this. We don't want to reboot the war on drugs. We need alternatives. We need treatment. What is the is there a through line here? Why do we keep always end up ending up saying where are the alternatives? When are they coming? Is it bureaucracy? Is it just is it disagreement? Is it lack of money? I would say that that Seattle has an issue. I mean, maybe this should be the city motto that perfect. Uh, but was it perfect is the enemy of progress, right? That that we don't ever come up with, we'll never have a perfect solution because there is no perfect solution to this. But the notion that you have no solution, that like either, either is perfect or none, which is really where we've gotten to in this issue in Seattle, seems to me pretty ridiculous. It, I would have liked to have heard, and again, I'll bring it back to Councilmember Lewis, who you're right, has an enormous amount of leverage now in this particular, in this particular situation. But, but somebody who was actually watching whether or not people were following up on their diversion program, someone who actually was involved in a process that was supposed to solve a lot of these problems by, by ending the war on drugs, at least as it comes to Seattle, and not treating addicts as not, – not, not giving them a, 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 a criminal violation that is then going to derail the rest of their existence. So I understand all of that, but I don't understand his sort of abdication of responsibility or knowledge on saying, well, I'm, I can't make a decision at this particular point. I'm open to some other ideas. I and mean, really it seems to me like if there's one person on the council who should have direct knowledge of whether or not Davison's complaints, which are that people were not following up on their diversion programs, whether or not that that's true, it would have been nice to hear from him on this. It would have been nice to say what was his experience when he was in former city attorney Pete Holmes' office, but he didn't say any of that. And it didn't make any sense to me because one person who might actually know a thing or two about this. Let us uh, pause there. There's a lot still developing on this. So we'll see what happens with uh, drug crime prosecution in Seattle and King County. Um, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about uh, East Coast smoke and more topics of the week on KUOW's Week in Review when we return. This is KUOW's Week in Review. You can watch the show on YouTube or Facebook since we stream it live. You just search KUOW Public Radio. I'm Bill Radke with my panel of journalists, science journalist Jane C. Hu, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and the Seattle Times, Patrick Malone. Before our former president was federally indicted, the big national story this week anyway, was wildfire smoke in New York and D.C. and, uh, and other uh, cities and states in the East. And science reporter Jane C. Who, your reaction to the East Coast getting a taste of smoke was what? A lot of mixed feelings, honestly. Um, I, first of all, felt horribly for these folks. Seeing the pictures of, you know, the Empire State Building shrouded in this orange smoke just felt eerie, kind of almost like, you know, a horror movie, like a dystopian end of the world feeling. And a lot of my East Coast friends have not really experienced this before. Um, might have heard a little bit of what we've experienced here on this coast, but I think for them, it was a visceral reaction to actually be able to to exist in this space and try and navigate. Um, I have seen and heard quite a bit of snark also from a lot of West Coasters. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, we've been through this before, kind of like, oh, like these sweet innocent East Coasters finally getting their taste of the smoke. And I find that really interesting in a way. Um, and 
for me, at least, I think that initial reaction of like, oh, well, you know, we've already been through that is a little bit of a defense mechanism because I think it's just frankly terrifying to see that it's not just this coast that is going to have to deal with that in the future. And we've always known that, right? Like if you talk to climate scientists or even climate journalists, um, we've been talking about this for a while that, of course, climate change is coming for us all. But to see it happening as quickly as it's happening now, um, these unprecedented fires up in Canada, um, and to, to see the smoke impacting the other half of the country is a little surreal. And I think it makes some of us here on the West Coast to feel a little bit better, to feel like we're prepared in a way. You know, it's like we've been through it. Like we know <laughs> when it strikes us again, inevitably, like we'll be ready, I think is kind of the the energy that I'm sensing from people around here sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've gotten just tons of photos from my old East Coast neighbors and friends that Looked like this almost nature applied a sepia tone filter just to let us know that we're all history, you know, to contemporary <laughs> photos, because it, it is monumental in the sense that what used to be, you know, a hazard for regional pockets is now everywhere in the U.S. And I saw that uh, NBC had a really good story about sort of ad hoc efforts to just try to even get N95 masks into the hands of delivery people, uh, you know postal carriers, Amazon delivery, food delivery people who have to be out in this. And if you look at who, you know, the burden lands on in these times of crisis, it's once again the same population that was out there shouldering a lot of the responsibility as essential workers during the pandemic. And I think that some of the uh, doomsday tales we were hearing about who's going to be affected and things as climate change ramps up are already starting to take shape. I've got another take on this. Here's what I say. So all of us were... Be careful about saying hot take because... I, I said another take. In the context of the fires... I said another <laughs> yes, take. Well done. Not a hot take. I, res- I respect um, the, So we've all... When you folks were... Uh, this is a question for the group. When all of you were in school, did you ever have that classmate who always like raised their hand on every question, You know, got the assignments in on time, was top of the class, class Victorian, class president, all those sort of... Yeah, that person in class. Right? I'm picturing we, we all her, did. yes. Okay. So... I've always felt like this is kind of Canada as a nation, and we're missing an opportunity here to just blame Canada. This is a our, they've got perfect healthcare. They've you know nice people, friendly. They gave us you know a lot of hockey. Mm-hmm. I would say this is a chance for us to blame Canada. Is anyone else with me, or is this just not a? I mean, so you're saying we need to we we should just we get should angry. build a, a beautiful wall of box fans <laughs> exactly. on our northern border and make Canada pay. Thank for you, it. thank you. Yeah, I mean, it exactly would be nice to, to just even hear sorry about that. Yes. Oh, there you Would go. Would it kill you to say sorry? Would it I, kill you to say sorry? Actually, the, that idea that that the smoke in in this case that in a sense climate change is coming from the north is kind of a sad version of we're all in this together. That's oh, yeah, true. You know, like you, I, I could imagine Canadians or Alaskans or Russians thinking uh, global warming not so bad. Uh, from where we sit, but it's just a reminder of the d- different ways that the econ- that the, the the environment gets wrecked and spins damaged off different ways. Yeah, the, the Arctic is heating up the quickest. Um, we're seeing a lot of changes up north already, and I think this is just further evidence of that. Absolutely, and we're going to be talking about this a lot all the way through August, I suspect. Yeah, well, in fact, our U.S. Senator, Maria Cantwell, had this warning this week. Unfortunately for us, the latest map of the forecast for this summer, there was a little bit of Washington in the red, 
but now my whole state is in the forecast for this summer being in the epicenter of this. Our whole state, meaning Western Washington as well? Yeah, we've already seen some uh, red flag warnings in this area, and I think even a brush fire off of the 405 earlier this week. Um, If you look around, things are pretty dry in general. Luckily, today we're getting a little bit of rain. Some rain today. Hoping that that helps. But I mean, I couldn't help but look at this East Coast smoke and think, well, it's going to be our turn soon. Um, A little bit of relief that it's not happening here yet. But given the unseasonably warm and dry weather, it seems like it could be gearing up to be a nasty fire year around here as well. We should just be grateful that we don't have a heat index of 110 where it's 95 degrees with 100 percent humidity, which is what some of the mid-Atlantic states are dealing with in addition to this smoke, which makes it doubly oppressive. Does anyone here own a home air filter, air purifier? I bought my fir- – no, I bought my first um, uh, filter. It looks like what I put into my furnace, right. you know, that, that's the size of I – I have one of those fans – and I've been resisting just, I don't know, I don't have a good reason for that. Uh, we don't have asthma in our family, you know. But I but over the winter time, I thought, I don't want to get in the crush of not only not being able to find one, but also feeling guilty for grabbing one when I don't have, I'm not especially vulnerable, you know. Right. But I thought, but I, I do want to have something. So I bought two of those filters over the winter, and they've been sitting and staring at me in my garage ever since. You're going to be happy you had them come July. Really? Yeah. I, I've got a couple air filters and a... I have really appreciated them over the last few years. I mean, I think this is also a good reminder that this is likely to happen again here this summer. So if folks are listening, think about it. Go go make yourself a little box fan filter. Get on, you know, whatever website it is and buy your little air filter. Just now is a great time to be starting to think about that. Yeah. Even if it's just one room. That the the family you know, I'm in a house with a family. If if it's that bad, you know, we can just have it's a little filter and a little fan, but but one clean room, right? Okay, so should we just like never do a show again? Should we just walk <laughs> slowly, slump out of the studio, leave the door open, and just uh, never smile again? Or should we talk about some else other things that happened this week? We can still smile under. These Auburn skies. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> Auburn. We'll get there. Um, another issue this week, you know, your, your, your cash is legal tender. It says so on, on the bills, if you, if you even carry any anymore, in your wallet, your purse. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can spend that cash anyplace. There are businesses that won't take cash anymore. This week, it looked like King County was going to require businesses to accept cash, but they didn't have the votes to do that. So, um, Patrick, I think you sent this along to us. Why wouldn't the county let private businesses accept whatever they want to? Well, I think that I think that once again it comes back to that uh, sort of the the fulcrum of cultural conflict in Seattle, which is: Are we looking out for our neighbors who have less, or are we looking out for people who seem to be doing okay? It comes back to the class question again, and. Uh, you know, it's a type of question that free market zealots will tell you the market can decide, but that isn't necessarily the case for a place like Seattle. You know, I look at Seattle and Washington, D.C., and these are cities where there's just vast disparity in wealth. One 
one segment of the population to the next. And so a lot of people are unbanked. They don't have a checking account. They don't have a debit card. And those folks aren't going to have access to, to certain businesses. On the other hand, businesses want to cater to who they want to cater to. You know, And I think that uh, what we have in King County is a mix on the council that makes this not an inevitability. I don't know which direction this is going to go. If you look at a state like New Mexico, it's hard there to pay with a card because so many places accept cash. So I think that it's a matter of a sort of a cultural adjustment here that uh, we need to aim to not exclude the general population, which is going to include some folks who don't have a bank account. And we see this cashless system even in concert and uh, sports venues here in Seattle where it would seem that you would want to have all the options on the table. I want to hear from our small business owner, Mike, in just a moment. First, Jane, do, do you also feel like this cash, credit, plastic situation is a class issue? Absolutely. I mean, it kind of comes down to like, do you have a smartphone some of the time as well? Um, I mean, we're talking about um, these businesses, but we also have seen um, like Bite of Seattle this weekend is supposed to be you have to download an app and load up money there and use that to to pay for going to different booths. That's the only thing they'll accept at Bite of Seattle? I think that that's the only thing they're going to accept at wow. Bite of Seattle. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think that the cash issue would exacerbate that, right? Like if if we determine that, you know, you have to have cash versus you don't have to have cash, clearly that would draw kind of a line in the sand. But I think we already have, are seeing that in a lot of places, right? Like you go into a restaurant and you have to have, like you can only access the menu via their website on if you have a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think functionally a lot of businesses are already kind of drawing that line in the sand and um, excluding people. Um, but yeah, as a person who has $1 in her wallet, um, mm. I appreciate when places take both. Um, but yeah, it really just feels like, uh, a class thing at the end of the day. Mike, you own or co-own, co-own. A, a small business. Mm-hmm. It, is there a burden on business that we should also be talking about when it comes to requiring them to accept cash? Well, uh, the business I own, which is a, which is a tavern, um, does accept uh, both cash and credit cards. Uh, so, so that is not, and that's uh, that's a conscious decision to do so. There's a lot of places that have gone uh, cashless. There is a couple just down the street from here. The Zoo Tavern in East Lake is cash only, and has cash a, only, cash only, and has an ATM in there, so you can use that uh, to pay for a transaction. And that also excludes some people who walk in with just a card, right, and maybe don't know their PIN number. But, but the bigger question here is is whether or not you want to cater to a wider group of people. And there's a plenty of people, and not it's not just people. It is a class question. I completely agree. But it's there's a lot of people who just would rather not have all their transactions tracked. And they'd rather walk in and hand you a 20. And the, and here's the other thing. like it's This is also – there's a component of this that affects the service industry. In that – and I'm not saying whether this is – I'm not saying this from personal knowledge. Of course not. Of course not. I think but, I know where we're going here. But but there is the whole issue of tipping. Yeah. And and there's been tip fatigue largely associated with electronic payment systems and not associated necessarily with cash tipping. But the problem is that frequently, I would suspect, that cash tips weren't always fully declared as income yeah. because it's it's completely hideable. Credit card tips 100% have to be declared. There's no way around that. That has to be declared. That is a bright line, and you get taxed on that. So people in the service industry literally take more of a hit if you give them an electronic tip as opposed to a cash tip. The 
compromise you can make sometimes is just paying electronically and tipping in cash, right? I mean, doing that sort of thing. If you worry or care about that in any way, I'm not suggesting people should do this. So, so you've got a whole bunch of things going on. It affects the business itself. It also affects the 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 type of customer you're going to get when you decide to eliminate cash personally and then there was the whole worry during the pandemic right remember about that it was a way of transmitting viruses and potentially you know how and then it turns out that none of that actually is really much of a factor here so so should you do that i mean should should the city require it require people to i mean the county in this case the county in this in this particular case you know i'm not a big fan of that sort of mandate just just speaking broadly but honestly, it wouldn't bother me at all if the county decided to, to, to mandate that because I think that that's fair. I mean, I look at who – I want a wide selection of people at a variety of you know beliefs and, and races and, and income levels and all of it. I want that level of folks to come into my place. And so I think that taking cash is one small way that you encourage that sort of thing. Do you think the county has an interest in – cards and you know and apple pay and whatnot because they get more tax revenue yes, absolutely zero question and the feds as well absolutely zero question mm. zero zero question that is absolutely there you will not find anyone at a government level other than folks who maybe want to think about this other issue what we're discussing regarding class uh, you will not find anyone who is on the revenue side of things who thinks that thinks that it's better to have, to include cash in this equation, I think one of the first places in Seattle that went cla- cashless was uh, Shilling Cider in Fremont. I walked in there, and they were one of the early adopters of "We're not taking." This was pre-pandemic. We're not taking any more cash. We didn't want to have. They didn't want to have the people handling it. They wanted to be able to track all of the stuff. They wanted to be able to track all of the tips. Um, I asked the owner whether or not this was going to be some pushback on staff, and there was a little bit of pushback. But generally speaking. They said that it worked out okay for them. So there are places that have already made the switch, small places and big places. You go to the stadium, you know, you go to you, – you can't book a hotel room with, with cash. You can't even pay for one frequently with cash. So, you know, the world is moving this direction. I would say in my place, 85% of the transactions are, are, uh, are electronic, you know. So, so you can do it without really losing a whole lot of business. But do you want to lose that component of business – do you want those people no longer coming in anymore? And I think that's a question a business would have to ask itself. Yeah. I don't know if we hit all these points, but there's also the having to deal with counterfeit bills and getting robbed because, you know, thieves there's know no you've ca- got cash. Yeah, like, you know you got cash on tap, right? Yeah. Uh, before we take a break, I just want to maybe quickly bring up this story that, uh, that uh, KUOW did, our reporter Amy Radel. The city of Seattle would like you to reuse your coffee cups, so they're partnering with local businesses They've already been putting washable cups into concert venues, beer gardens, and Amy told us they're venturing into local coffee shops. Jack Gralla is with the company Reusables.com. Customers at a handful of cafes can tap their credit card to get one of the company's stainless steel travel cups for free. When they hear free, they're like, yeah, sure. I'll give that a shot. So that's a big reason. The cup is free as long as they return it to any participating business within 14 days. At Tailwind Cafe on Capitol Hill, Noreen Shahani took one of the steel cups, which she'll return when she's finished with her errands nearby. It wasn't too out of my way today, and I do like really hot coffee. Apparently stainless steel keeps your drink hot longer, which I hadn't considered. But would you would you take any of you take a cup for free if you knew it was gonna not be free if you didn't return it? 
Yes, with the knowledge that I most definitely would return it late and then end up having to just keep it, which I think actually uh, brings up this question of, you know, yes, this will save a lot of disposable cups, but you do wonder what the environmental impact is in the long run here. Um, I think it's definitely a good move towards trying to incentivize people to bring their own and to remember to do that or to remember to return whatever it is that they've borrowed. Um, but what this brings to mind for me is this move away from plastic bags, which I think is uncontroversially good. Um, but it seems like a lot of people then rushed out and bought a bunch of tote bags to replace their plastic bags. Um, I think part of that is also, you know, to kind of give the illusion of being environmentally friendly, being the kind of person who remembers to bring your, like, you know, fancy tote bags. Um, But as we know, like, growing cotton is extremely environmentally um, costly. And Mm. the, the huge industry around basically replacing these disposable things with um, more durable, but still environmentally costly to produce items. Um, so I do wonder what it is here. don't drink? Is that- <laughs> I think it's try and remember your mug either way. I think this is a step in the right direction, but I guess I'm curious about the, the longer term impacts here. Um, and also, yeah, who, who can afford to, to pay $15 if they forget? Like, I'm curious about the uh, uptake for this program. Yeah. Okay. You get charged 15 bucks. Uh, you get a refund if you return it within 45 days. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of this. No? I should be. I mean, I am a fan of doing things. I, I loved the, the plastic bag ban. I agree with you. The cost of a cotton tote can be more extreme even than a plastic bag, given the amount of water it takes to make one. But I would say that I see this as becoming, most of these cups becoming, especially if they're free. And even if there's if there's a, if you make the charge big enough, then people will bring it back. And people won't even... Maybe that person won't bring it back. Give that 15 bucks to everyone who brings one of those in that came from your place, right? Make it sort of like when you used to be able to return bottles yeah. and get money for that, you know, a deposit on the thing. That makes a little bit more sense to me. But I see this stuff, especially if you're walking away with it, just becoming more landfill. I'm a bigger believer, not even in recyclable containers, but in compostable ones. Things that just don't last very long will break down. For all of those people who are just going to throw it down somewhere or stick it in the trash or not dispose of it, at least it will still on its own decompose. I'm not – stainless steel does not, and it does not over an extended period of time. And so I'm not – I mean I love the idea they should for, enforce it on in-house consumption. Like you should be able to get a mug. You should actually get a mug if you're, that could be washed. I think that's great. But the, for the to-go stuff – I'm not sure I'm a big believer in the in the stainless steel because I just think that that stuff's going to end up in a landfill somewhere. Okay, we, Patrick, we've got to take a break. Um, I I'm going to go to Mike's bar and I'm just going to put my head under the tap and open my mouth until <laughs> yes. they start serving coffee by trough. I think again? we don't have a solution <laughs> again. Again, yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, okay, let's take a short break and then get back with any uh, news we haven't dealt with and something that could make you smile. Stay tuned. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review with me, your host, Bill Radke, with the Seattle Times' Patrick Malone, with GeekWire's Mike Lewis, with freelance science journalist Jane C. Hu. And an item we haven't discussed yet, you know, Washington State has a capital gains tax now. It's bringing in a lot of money. Why not the city of Seattle? 
says Seattle City Council member Alex Peterson, who proposed it this week. The deal is if it passed, he would want to eliminate the 15 percent tax you pay on your water service. Adopting a more fair and progressive capital gains tax would ensure that no one has to pay taxes for their drinking water again, making this the first time Seattle has proactively eliminated a regressive tax. Does anyone here think that Seattle will pass a capital gains tax? Is that inevitable? Uh, I think they will. Yeah. I think I think now that it the the statewide, um, and remember, uh, not an income tax but an excise tax, mm-hmm. um, which made it, which is what sort of was the legal standard to make it legal in Washington State, mm-hmm. because that made it through. Um, I think that there's zero question that, and there it's not unprecedented. New York City has a has a capital gains tax, yeah. so it's not unprecedented for the city. The city, I mean, when you pay an excise tax in in Seattle, if you're a business and you send the sales tax to the state, a portion of that, the city has a rider on top of that, and it makes its own money. It collects a portion of that money you're sending. I, I don't see why the city wouldn't look to go to the add a rider on top of capital gains tax and just allow the state to collect it and then get that money, a portion of that money sent back. I can't see Seattle passing up the opportunity on this one. And will it just be a shift from regressive tax to progressive tax? Will the overall tax uh, taxing uh, increase? What do we think? Well, it, it does appear that it's not going to be a huge hit for the you know, very small number of people that would be penalized by this tax. And that's what it would be penalizing some and not others. But it just is a benefit to so many that it's hard to see any council members uh, not supporting it because it's going to benefit their constituents in big numbers. Um, there is a question, though, is is the city the right place for this, though? You know, would this be better as an action by King County that then we don't get? And I realize that there hasn't been a lot of evidence that uh, businesses react or, or individuals would react by moving over such a small thing when they've got such vast wealth to qualify for this because excluded from it, for instance, are home sales, which I think then is going to take most of the general population out of being affected by this capital gains. But, you know, might the county be the right place instead of the city hmm. just to keep things uniform and to not create disruptions or, you know, vitriolic reactions from those who are taxed under this inside the city? Well, uh, um, speaking of vitriolic reactions, I can't see this going over well in Bellevue. <laughs> so so I, my guess is that you, the reason it could happen in Seattle is because you would get less of that vitriolic reaction. You'd get more of it if you expanded it uh, countywide, I think. But I, to your point, I think that actually makes a lot of sense sort of logistically for it to be a countywide thing and not just a city thing. So again, we don't know how this city tax um, would be drawn up, but... Um and Jane, let me know if you have anything to add. But I'm just like to recap. This would, at the state level, it's if you make more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in one year from the sale of stocks and bonds, and that's not even retirement savings. That's a big exemption, like you said, real estate big exemption. So this would be another. A Seattleite would pay another two percent on top of what they're paying the state if that's if they drew it up the same way. Yeah, right? and it would only be the amount of money over that first two hundred fifty right. is is is, uh, is essentially on the house, as they say. Right. right? So if you make three hundred thousand dollars, you're just paying on fifty on the fifty thousand dollars. Correct. Yeah. I saw this described as a two percent on the top one percent, um, ah. and I look forward to hopefully a hundred dollars less on my water bill. <laughs> okay. Um, let me. Uh, Start to wrap up the show. We got less than five minutes. Always want to leave 
people with something to smile about. Mine is just that my old uh, co-worker, Marketplace host Kai Rizdahl, is at Town Hall Seattle tonight with his co-host of Marketplace's Make Me Smart podcast, senior Washington correspondent Kimberly Adams. And since I do a series called Words in Review that's in your Week in Review podcast feed, Mike, you and I love to discuss words. Um, we asked Kimberly Adams, what's a word you hear a lot that gets under your skin? The word that always jumps out to me when I hear it is everybody. You hear that everybody is doing this or everyone is this or some some version of everybody. And very rarely does it mean everybody, even everybody within a particular group. But to me, it reflects this assumption that a lot of us have baked in that those around us, those who share a characteristic or a group or even where we live with other people, that we by default think the same. And most of the time we don't. And I think it's always helpful whenever you hear the word everybody or everyone to just really examine who and and what we're exactly talking about. Remember a few years ago when somebody in Seattle could say, we all this and everybody that? <laughs> uh, I don't know if anybody says that anymore in, in Seattle. But uh, that is the the perspective I want in my senior Washington correspondent. Kimberly Adams there and Kai Rizdahl are going to be doing a live taping of Marketplace's Make Me Smart podcast tonight. So they'll get into the business news. They'll play their favorite game, half full, half empty, all while sipping on drinks. So that's Town Hall Seattle, 7 o'clock tonight. Get your tickets, org slash events. What else made you smile this week? I got one this week. And I normally don't have – it's not that I don't smile. I rarely bring a, bring a smile to this. But I've got one, and it actually is about – a little bit about this particular show. Producer Kevin Kniestat got engaged last week. Hey! hey congrats, and, Kevin. and got engaged to someone that actually works – a woman named Kelsey Hoffman, who's a bartender at uh, the place Streamline Tavern. Uh, my bar, hey, which is pretty exciting. That is a, an occasion to come to your bar and put our head under Underneath. the tap <laughs> with our mouth open. Yeah, which is a fully reusable, fill, refillable device. Yes, it is. And oh, compostable. Me. And compostable. <laughs> eventually, eventually compostable. Eventually, yes. That's legal now. Uh, congratulations, Kevin. Thank you, Mike. Uh, what else was smile-worthy? Well, I... You know, now I'm smiling about Kevin, but before that, I had been smiling about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. My kids took me to it, and it was just a total joyride, so I'd recommend people go see it. I would just say that I haven't followed the superhero movies at all, but I took my kids to this, and the opening sequence, which sometimes is a grabber, you know, just to get you excited, I thought, whoa, that was a really cool opening sequence, you know, with the playing the drums. And then it turns out the whole movie's that cool-looking. So, yes, even if you're not a superhero fan like myself, I think you might dig the way this movie looks. It is an artistic tour de force. Yeah. Jane, we got a minute and a half. Did you smile this week? I did. Um, I feel like with all the nice weather, people are getting out and about. And um, I live near Green Lake. And I have noticed a proliferation of just like random food left around because I think people are like picnicking and just hanging out outside. Mm -hmm. And the crows are having a feast. Like I've really enjoyed watching crows eat a variety of weird things, including an empty pasta container. And then actually today I rode my bike to the station and um, I saw a couple of crows going nuts on a bag of Doritos. And that just made me really happy. So 
Wow, the crows are happy, at least. And maybe the raccoons and the rats <laughs> and the, who knows. We're all in this together. Urban wildlife, yes. Urban wildlife. That's freelance science journalist. That's how she just looks at the whole world, right? The big complex web uh, of our world. That's science journalist Jane C. Who, Geek Wire contributing editor Mike Lewis, Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. It's great to see you all. Thanks for doing the show this week. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Thanks for Bill. having us. I want to both thank and congratulate Week in Review producer Kevin Kniestet, newly engaged, and thank you to Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu for social media and live streaming expertise. And Bernard Wallet runs the board and makes it sound great. And when special counsels give live statements on federal indictments of former presidents, uh, Bernard makes that happen smoothly. Thank you for listening, everyone, and have a great week. See you soon.